The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909-741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Welcome to the Influencer's Edge. This is the place where you come to get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques to leapfrog over the pack in sales, persuasion, and influence. Be sure you visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com. And while you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now sit back, tune in, and enjoy today's episode. All right, I am very excited for today's episode. We have a superstar, John. John, I told you before the show started in the green room conversation, I had some butterflies interviewing you because you're such a genius Hmm. at what you do and you're such a rock star. So you gave me a little uh, animation to make those go away. Yes, we get the butterflies to fly in formation in our stomach. Uh, (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to read your biography because you're quite an accomplished man from your website, if that's okay with you. Sure. All right. So John Livesey, is that right? A.K.A. The Pitch Whisperer is a sales keynote speaker where he shows company sales teams how to turn mundane case studies into compelling case stories, so they win more new business. From John's award-winning career at Condé Nast, he shares the lessons he learned that turned sales teams into revenue rock stars. His TEDx talk, Be the Lifeguard of Your Own Life, has over 1 million views. And his new book, The Sale is in the Tale, is a business fable set in Austin, Texas is about a sales representative whose old ways of selling are not working anymore. The reader accompanies the rep on his journey and learns how to use storytelling and strengthen their soft skills to improve the professional and personal relationships. I think we got that right. Good. All right. So let's dive right in. John, I want to ask you a question that I ask everybody, okay. which is before we dive into what you do, and I think it's genius, that distinction between case studies and case stories. How did you come up with this distinction? Meaning, what was your process? Did it suddenly dawn on you? Did you build this idea over time? How did this genius idea occur to you? Well, I was in sales myself for many years. I sold everything from multi-million dollar mainframe computers in Silicon Valley to um, selling an advertising agency's creative services for movies coming out on home video, to wow. selling ad space for Condé Nast, which is lots of brands like GQ and Vanity Fair and Architectural Digest. And, and so I realized that this concept of a case study, here's an example of another client we did all this work for, um, was putting us in the left side of our brain when we analyze things. So even the word study sounds like homework to me. <laughs> And I thought, you know, some of these case studies are pretty dry. 
you know, it's very factual and a lot of numbers. And uh, I knew from working in uh, an ad agency uh, with where we would take a movie that hadn't done so well theatrically and reposition it for it to come out on home video back in the day of Blockbuster. Um, oh, that, wow. <laughs> you, you do go back. I remember yes. Blockbuster. <laughs> so that's really where I learned my storytelling skills. You could take the existing movie, been an hour and a half, two hours, and totally cut it differently to make people want to go see it. So I thought this, you know, stories are what people respond to and we buy emotionally, not logically. So that just all led to, well, let's turn a case study into a case story. So that's how that all evolved. And it's a big difference. Um, I can give you an example of uh, a case story. Um, I was working with an architecture firm and it was between them and two other firms on who was going to get to renovate an airport. And the stakes were very high. Whoever won, was it's a billion dollars to renovate an airport for the next six years. So they had some case study materials of here's pictures of another airport we did. It was a lot of, you know, before and after pictures, but no story. So this is the story that helped them win that billion dollar airport renovation. Six years ago, JetBlue at JFK hired us to renovate the terminal. One of our challenges during that process was we had to rip up all the tiles in the middle of the night from nine at night till nine in the morning and rewire everything and get it done in time so the stores could open and not lose any money. And we had all our vendors on call in case something went wrong. And sure enough, at two in the morning, a fuse blew. We had the vendor there in 20 minutes, fixed everything. And at 8.59, the last tile went down. All the stores opened on time. And now sales are up 15% a year after the design because we've created a place that pulls people in and gets them to spend more money. So you're picking on a little journey and the potential client said, oh, that's what we want. We want that kind of outcome. Now, the old way of doing it, Paul, would be to say, we use critical thinking to anticipate problems. So instead, showing that in the story makes it much more memorable and tugs at your heartstrings a little bit. So instead of fact-based recitation of what's going on, you're including the facts within the story. Exactly. The narrative is so imaginative. It, it evokes the imagination. It requires the person to have visual imagery in their mind. It's exciting all the senses so they can imagine it. Yes. They can hear the sounds of what's going on. Yep. They can feel the feelings of excitement and, and uh-oh, are we going to be able to do this? Right. It's really triggering what they call an NLP, V-A-K, visual, auditory, and kinesthetic. I don't know if you've studied NLP. I have a lot, and you're very observant to notice all of that because without the stakes being high in any story, it's not interesting. If we don't care. So that's why, you know, you see uh, 8.59, the last, and I did a little visual with the tile going down. Um, I work with a lot of people in the healthcare industry and I was working with a firm that um, specializes in dementia and Alzheimer's and they had said to me, you know, when they first got a patient, um, she was so depressed that she would put her head down on the table. And I said, okay, that's the beginning of a story. Let's really amplify that and we're going to tap into all the senses. So now they describe it that six months ago, Pat, a woman in her early 80s, uh, came to us and we looked over and she had hit her head down on the table with a slight thud. And we looked at her and we thought, how depressed must she feel wow. that she's not even curious to look up and see what's going on around her? 
And then they t- go on to tell the story of how they helped her get out of that funk and now she's very involved and on the right meds and all this good stuff. So, but that opening of that story uses the thud. You hear the head, you know, yeah. empathy for what she must feel that sad. Yes. And then not even curious to look around. So we're tapping into all three of those in one description as opposed to, you know, her head was on the on the table. And we're also building empathy for her. I don't want to call it a hero's journey, but in a sense, it's yeah. it's a yeah. heroic journey from suffering to solution. Right. And that's why I gave her a name and let you know how old she was and how long ago it happened. All of that exposition really pulls you into the story. You're painting a picture. I think it's really genius. Uh, essentially, what you're doing is you're capturing and leading the imagination and the emotions of the prospects so they can't not respond. They have to respond because you're appealing to so many of the elements of their imagination and you're building tension and drama and there's tension and drama. And then in that resolution, tell me if this is an accurate description. I don't want to step on you. You're right on the money. Building this tension and this drama and then it resolves. And in that moment of the release of the tension, your prospect can go, oh, okay, wow. That's such a match for me emotionally. Now I'm open to a place where I really want to hear the facts and the data. You bring up a really good point, which is a lot of people don't have a resolution to their story. And the example I give is imagine if the Wizard of Oz ended when Dorothy got in the balloon and it would be the end. (laughs) She's going back to Kansas. (laughs) No, there's that wonderful scene where she's in bed and she's like, oh, there's no place like home. And she starts appreciating everybody. And you were there and you were there. And so... Um, if you look, uh, remember the Gensler uh, architecture story I was sharing about the airport renovation, that resolution is what life is like a year after. Sales are up 15%. Genius, because now you're doing another thing from uh, uh, from NLP, or maybe it's just your own genius, mm-hmm. is your future pacing the result. Yes. You're taking forward in time, looking back at the present moment. It's having, of, yes. having been these the resolution of their problem did now is this intentional that you're taking forward in time very much so but as a sales keynote speaker i have to often sell myself you know a lot of people will find me through search or referrals or the bureaus recommend me and then they typically will interview me versus one or two other speakers and at the end of the conversations i always ask people let's imagine that it's a week after the event and we're going to have a phone call and I want to have a phone call, by the way. What would have to happen at that event for you to feel so happy that you hired me? What are the, what's the audience saying? What are you feeling? What's the overall buzz? And then they start saying, well, you know, people would be really attentive. Uh, they'd be taking notes. They'd be starting to use stories more. They'd be saying that's one of the best speakers we've ever had. And I start, you know, then I'm like, all right, now that is what I can have, I can deliver all that. And I tell the story of when I did it. It's a brilliant, uh, and I like this. Did you begin by saying, what if? Mm-hmm. Was that how you put it? Yeah. This is amazing. It, essentially, you're a great, I, I, my observation about you is you're a great hypnotist. Whether you're <laughs> <laughs> No, but have you heard that observation before? Not, or, not directly, no, that's fun. But, but when you say, what if, I've been doing hypnosis 30 years. When you say what if, it's equivalent to a hypnotic suggestion that says, go inside, pause, and imagine you having this outcome. Right. It's, John, 
<laughs> I, I've met many hypnotists, but whether you know it or not, you're a damn good one. <laughs> well, again, your insights are right on the money. Uh, one of the big takeaways people have after they've heard me speak is using that phrase, what if, when they get a no or an objection. And I tell a story of when I um, was calling on Speedo and I was representing a fashion magazine and they were coming out with a line of sportswear. And I said to them, oh, would you consider advertising that in my fashion magazine? And they said, no, we're going to advertise it in a fitness magazine. And I said, what if we treated the sportswear like it was high fashion and we could have models wearing the sportswear around a swimming pool outside by a hotel? And Michael Phelps is on your payroll during the Olympics. If you invite him, I bet we'll get a lot of publicity. And they got the, you know, they love the idea so much. I got the advertising and more importantly for me as a former lifeguard, I got to meet Michael Phelps. So, um, but now people have that in their toolbox. The next time I hear a no or an objection, I'm going to reframe it and go, well, what if we did it this way? Or what if this happened? And then you get people intrigued enough to say, well, well how would that look? What would that, do you think we could get no. Michael Phelps to show up? Yeah, I think we could because he, we're paying him. Yeah. So then it suddenly starts, um, I have another example. Um, Anthem Insurance was interviewing me uh, compared to other speakers. And um, I asked this question. If I'm selected as your speaker to kick off the event, what else is happening in the rest of the next day and a half? Oh, well, at the end of the first day, we're going to have an improvisation session. And people are going to shout out objections from the audience and people will be on stage role playing. And I said, oh, well, what if I didn't catch the first plane home and stayed and I could be on stage with the people role-playing. And if they got stuck, I could whisper something in their ear from my talk to keep it going. And they said, oh my gosh, that never even occurred to us to ask a speaker to do that. That'd be amazing. And then at the actual event, people would say to me, oh, can you be in my ear all the time when I'm in the field? And uh, I told that story to Inc. Magazine and they said, well, you're the pitch whisperer then. And that's how I got that title. And now that's part of my brand. I think this is really brilliant because that, that if you just said, uh, what if I stayed, didn't take the plane home, and when people are on the stage, I just assisted them in handling objections. Instead, you painted that image. What if I whispered in their ear? Mm -hmm. uh, which also has the meaning, as I see it, is you're telling them secrets. Yes. This is really good. This is I'm tempted to invest in, in you as my coach. You're really, really good. This is really, really good. Now, one of the things you did in The Sales and the Tale is you told it as a fable. It's not a how-to book. I'm sure there's how-to embedded within the fable. So I'd like to ask not why you did it. We'll get there. We'll get there. But again, I always like to ask, what's your what was your process of coming up with the fable and how did you blend the how-to with the fable? It sounds like it's, it's not, an, it wasn't an easy process to do, but I could be wrong. Well, it was a challenge, but it was also a lot of fun. As someone who loves storytelling, um, crafting a story about storytelling was thrilling. And the process was, I had to figure out who is my ideal client and it's tech companies and healthcare companies I've spoken to many of them. So I have an in-depth understanding of those people's particular struggles of taking facts and figures and speeds and feeds and turning it into stories. Right. So I, I knew I wanted that to be my niche of the book as well. 
And I think the more specific you are in your niche and you're known for, oh, this is the person you bring in for a healthcare or a tech company sales meeting, boom, but not, I speak to other organizations, of course, but doubling down on that was the first step. And then I had to figure out every hero goes through obstacles, as you said, the hero's journey, who's going to be the mentor? And that was a little tricky trying to figure out how do I incorporate someone into the story that has a meaningful relationship that makes sense that they would have observations. And it turns out it's the person who's a woman who's the tech person who goes on a lot of sales calls with all the reps and sees firsthand what's working and what's not. And so I literally had to write down a list of all the characters, right? There's the main character, Ben, and his best friend, Diane. And then Ben has a sister and the sister has a wife and a daughter he's an uncle to. And he learns how to tell stories so great that he actually um, tells a bedtime story to his niece. So there's that subplot going on. And and then he almost gets fired for losing a sale. And um, he has to go to a uh, someone else that he helped train promotion that he didn't get party. And what did that feel like? Um, so there's a lot of ups and downs. And at the very end are the five storytelling secrets in a template form that you've been shown. But the majority of the book is you going on this journey. Um, and recently I was speaking to the Berkshire Hathaway Home Services team of real estate agents. And one of the senior partners came up to me and he said, I loved your book. My son, Peter, sounds like your lead character, Ben. He's 30 something. He's had his whole, this job selling insurance since college. And he's, you know, struggling a little bit. Um, just like your character did. So many young people think, oh, gosh, by the time I hit 30, I thought I'd be hitting, you know, that Forbes list of 30 people under 30. Right. And I didn't make it. And, oh, you know, all these issues. So that was thrilling that someone saw their son in the story. Um, and that that's an author's dream. Because uh, that's the goal of any storytelling is that you see yourself in it. Right. And so this is, uh, again... A really interesting journey that you undertook with some with uh, a lot of courage and a lot of drive, which is to become a fiction writer, but not just a fiction writer, a fiction writer who combines the how-to within the tale. Of those two things, which would which was the biggest challenge to do the fiction part or the technical stuff? Well, it's my fourth book in seventeen years, so the okay. process of um, getting out the information of how to be successful in sales through storytelling um, I had done in previous books. So that part, and I, but then I came up with new things. One of my favorite new things, and this is what's so fascinating. When you finish a book, you think, oh, I don't have one more thing to say. I'm never doing another book. I'm, I'm tapped out. And then you start thinking about other things or discovering other things. And you're like, oh, maybe I do have enough new content here. Um, so one of the things that, I really want as a speaker and as an author is to give somebody something that's easy to remember and easy to use that can impact them in a positive way. So I noticed myself dealing with disappointment and frustration and rejection. And I'm like, you know, I, you know, I gotta have some tools here. So my premise is that we're all the movie director of our own life and that we can zoom out and yell, cut, change the location, change the cast, change everything. And, um, there you go with metaphors again that people yeah. reject. You're, you're a metaphor machine. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, you have a choice, right? You can get mad and steam about it. 
for a, or you can just oh, well that person must be in a hurry and not take it personally so what i came up with is 555 you zoom out you're the movie director you go will this matter in five minutes it's up to me if it does somebody cut me off okay something more like you don't you get a no and you don't get a promotion or you don't get a sale um, will this matter five hours from now? How about five days from now? And what's fascinating is the things that we get so upset about when you really zoom out and go, will this really bother me five days from now? Probably not. So do I want to give it this much energy or do I want to five, five, five it and let it go now so that I can be fully present? Because in sales, we need to become resilient when we have those no's. The faster we get back up, the more present we are for the next situation and not dragging all that negative uh, energy with us. Now, some people say, you know, some other th stuff happens that five days, yeah, it's still going to matter. And I, I, I relate to that. You know, when my father passed away, I wish I had this tool, Paul, because I could go back in time to my younger self and say, listen, I know you're really sad, but in, you know, let's, let's five, five at another, how about five weeks, five months, five years from now? Oh, you're still going to miss him, but I promise you, you won't be this sad five years from now as you are now. And so that would give me some perspective again of, oh, I don't, this isn't going to last forever, this feeling of grief in this intense space anyway. So um, it, it's so rewarding to tell that story of the lead character getting that tool and having it help him. And then I talk about it in my talk and ironically, the talk I was giving, um, I was the last speaker. They were having me close the event and this senior management person was supposed to introduce the CEO and it was, you know, 375 people in a ballroom. It hadn't happened in, you know, three years for them. And he was a little nervous and I could see sweat pouring down his forehead. And then he gets up on stage and his nose starts bleeding. Oh, and someone dear. says, get him a napkin, you know, and he's holding the napkin and trying to talk through one side of his nose. And he's like, I'm going to have to come back. This isn't stopping. And everyone was freaked out. You know, the sign of red blood on a white napkin from, and him, you know, like, is he going to be okay? And, you know, is that a sign of nerves? You know, it's an unconscious response like that. Um, and then he went backstage with um, his vice president and she, they both read the book. And she said he was so thrown by that. And, and I had to say to him, we're going to five, five, five this. No one's going to care five minutes from now and, and five hours from now, or even let alone five days from now. You got to get back in the moment here. And he, that really helped him and which made me feel so great to have that kind of impact that he was able to get back on stage and say, yeah, I don't know if you saw what happened to me, but somebody slapped me. <laughs> and that's why my nose was bleeding. And so it was a very, <laughs> you know, fun little reference to what we all saw happen at the Oscars. So um, those... <laughs> Um, you know, then, you know, when you're able to make fun of something and keep uh, lighten it up, then you give everyone else permission to go, oh, it's not too soon to joke about this. I want to give you props again, because so many times I've heard people say you've got to get up from your your defeat and just get back up on your feet. But they don't give you a process. Yeah. So what I like here is you're giving people a process that's quick, that's easy to do, that's effective. It's not a long, ponderous thing <laughs> where you go through all your goals and vision, revision again. And, and it's practical, it's pragmatic, and it's quick. And I, I just speaking from my own experience, I've been to so many events and so many seminars where they say you just have to pick yourself up 
and keep on going, but they don't give you a technique. They don't give you what was your, and again, I dive in deeper. How did you come up with this technique? Was it trial and error? Did it, you seem to me, if I can, part of your genius, and I'm just going to put my observation of your genius is you both get flashes of insight and you also are willing to do the hard work of trial and error. Yeah. Is that a correct observation? That would be a correct observation. Yes. Um, So with with the five, 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 was that a flash of insight or did you have to work that one out? um, It started with me imagining me being the movie director of my life. And I've seen those, you know, making of movies where they're up on the crane and they yell cut and the bell goes off and reset. Right. And we're going to go back and redo that scene or we're going to, we're done. We're moving on. And so I thought, we're moving on, meaning we're moving on to the next page of the script. Um, and I thought, well, what if we move on and say, will this, you know, that was a very dramatic scene you just did, right? Somebody, <laughs> whatever the issue is, you got, you didn't get the promotion. You got a big no, you th- people disappointed you, whatever. Somebody broke up with you. And so I kept imagining all those scenarios and then going, but if it's a movie, the actor has to stop crying and get ready for the next scene. And they only sometimes have five minutes, you know, between scenes to do it. Uh, rarely are they given five hours to, they got to have that all in their head. Ready to go. So that's what inspired me to do it. And then I, um, once I had the first five, 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 and then I started thinking about, well, certain things are harder than others to let go of even in five days. And then I thought of my dad's death. And then I said, okay, let's do another version of it. But I love it as a tool for people because not only is it something you can remember and use yourself, but if you start sharing it with other people, then they start advising. Let's five, five, five this. Like, you know, the woman helping uh, the guy backstage. And so you get this little team of people understanding that tool together. Then it's really powerful because they were you're like, no, 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 we're not talking about this anymore. We're not talking about what somebody said that insulted you so much. That was five hours ago. We five fived it. We were done. Remember, we said we weren't going to keep talking about. It. The more you keep talking about it, the more you keep bringing it up. It, 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 we five five fived it. And you know, All right, okay, sorry, thanks. That's such an easy tip, a gold nugget that you've dropped for keeping a a pragmatic. It's a pragmatic solution mm-hmm. that leads to leads to a consistent mindset, not something that pops like a bubble where you're doing, oh, I can't get over this. I, I can get over this. I am positive. I am positive, which creates a conflict with your unconscious mind that says, this is awful. I can't do it. Rather than examining the story, your future pacing people where they're already in the solution. So again, congratulations on being a brilliant at the test. <laughs> Thank you. You're, you're, Hopefully I don't put people to sleep. That's the only thing. No, no. I think that that's a big misnomer. Right. Uh, hypnosis. We can have a conversation about this uh, the other time. You know, we've actually covered, but let me ask you this. I think you already answered this question, but I want to dive in a little bit no. deeper in it. So what would you say to people who say to you, John, this is fantastic. I can see how it applies to so many people, but I'm just not a good storyteller. This is a natural given art. I I am not, I'm a left brain person and all these limiting statements and beliefs. Right. What would you say to someone who says, well, I can't be a good storyteller? 
I would say the good news is you don't have to be born a gifted storyteller to learn how to become a good one. It's not like having a skill to be an opera singer or an athlete. You know, I'll never be Tom Brady or whatever. I'll never be Meryl Streep in acting. There's a structure to a story. And once you understand that structure, as we talked about, exposition, problem, solution, and resolution, then you have that structure that you start filling in. And then I give people a little checklist, the three C's, which is your story should be clear because the confused mind says no. Yeah. So don't use a bunch of acronyms. It should be concise so that right. people can remember and repeat it. And then it needs to be compelling. There has to be some emotion in it. Wow. Using the word struggle or overwhelm, describing someone else's problem. So if you have that structure, like here's the four steps to a story. Let me try to fill in each part so I make sure I have something in each little checkbox. And then let me practice the story and ask my friends, was that clear or did I lose you? Was it concise enough? Can you repeat it? And finally, was it at all compelling? Did you feel anything? Then you're on your way, like any skill, like riding a bike. You got the training wheels on at first and then eventually you take them off. There you um, go with the metaphor. <laughs> yeah. You is you know so you're not going to be perfect at it, but that's the other thing I tell people is the goal isn't to be a perfectionist; it's to be a progressionist. Now that's a word I made up. Oh, that's a brilliant distinction, yeah. folks. Uh, listen, he said the goal is not to be a perfectionist; it's to be a progressionist. Yeah, our brain is wired to celebrate progress. That's why Fitbit is so successful on the wrist. Right? How many steps did I do today? Video games. You're at the next level. So. You're climbing Mount Everest, Paul, and you're halfway up. You can look down and go, wow, look how much progress we've made. Or uh, look how much further we have to go. And salespeople with their quotas and everything in your life, you're always a choice. You, and I really encourage people in management, open your meetings celebrating progress every time. Set the tone with that as opposed to... I, and I think, and I think, and I want to bat this question over to you. This is an observation I would like to get your feedback on. My observation is we live in a culture that focuses us on mistakes. When we're in school, yep. the first thing the teacher does is check in. When I was in school, it was oh, yeah. many, many, many decades ago when dinosaurs roamed the earth, the teacher would just put in red check marks what you did wrong. Yeah. And we're taught as a society to look not at our progress and to, what to say celebrate it, but to dwell on our, our defeat. So what would you say to a salesperson? Of how do they, how do they learn to celebrate their progress? Because I don't think it's, I understand what you say about the brain being hardwired. And I agree with yeah. you, but there's also social and cultural influences that will damp that down. So how could a salesperson learn to celebrate their progress? It's a wonderful skill. How do they learn to do it? Um, well, we measure everything and then we, you know, that gives us data. And you say, you know, how many calls did I make last week? I made one more this week. That's progress. It's not big progress, but I'm still, it's progress. And so I'm going to focus on that as opposed to beating myself up. It's like if you're trying to lose weight, right? You're like, oh, I need to lose 10 pounds in a week. Well, did you gain 10 pounds in a week? Probably not. So, you know, just celebrate the progress is by measuring it objectively and say, look, we, or you're working on a big project like a book or an online course like I have. You're like, all right, well, we're almost halfway done yeah, so, and celebrate that. Look how much we've done in the last X number of months. And you just keep reinforcing that in your brain. And that's what causes you to keep going with some enthusiasm as opposed to feeling overwhelmed 
by everything. Um, I do have a technique that helps people um, hit the reset button a little bit after all the no's in addition to the 555. I was speaking to the Jaguar sales team and um, they said, you know, when somebody doesn't buy from us for whatever reason, um, it's hard to, you know, celebrate this is a good day. And I said, you know, when you go to a restaurant, here's another metaphor for you, and you get a fancy meal and they serve sorbet in between the courses to, quote, cleanse your palate. I say, let's cleanse your palate between sales calls. And so what I encourage people to do is call somebody up they sold something to, whether it was a house or a car or whatever the product is, not for any other purpose, but just to say, how are you enjoying your car? How are you liking your house? Whatever it is you sold them, and you'll hear them say, oh, I love it, I'm so happy. And that's what you put in your head the next time somebody calls or walks into the um, dealership that's, that's cleansing your palate so that you're like, oh, I have made progress and I'm remembering how happy I make people when I sell them a car, a house, a medical device, whatever it is. I can see how this would be really uh, effective for everyone, but especially for people who I perceive you as being who are service driven and impact minded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're seeing the impact that you're having as a, as a reinforcement, John, this has been, you've dropped so much gold here. I'm going to go beyond gold. You've offered a treasure chest. Of oh, thanks, Paul. So I would like to ask, how can people learn more from you? Because sure. what if ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you could imagine times in the future having learned from John and blossoming open in your skill set and your joy of being so successful. John, how can they continue to, to learn from you and to grow with you? Well, the easiest thing to do is to take out your phone and text the word PITCH, P-I-T-C-H, to 66866, and you get the first chapter of my book for free. And then you can decide if it's compelling enough to make you want to see what happens next. And um, you can go to my website, which has all kinds of great content and information about an online course I have where I coach people. And if you can't remember any of that, just Google the Pitch Whisperer and all my content shows up. John, thank you. This has been an awesome interview. You've contributed so much value to our audience. And I want to encourage the audience. This is an episode that's so filled with value. You're going to enjoy it as you find yourself watching and listening multiple times, I would encourage all of you to write notes each and every time you go through this. I think you're going to find more and more value. John, I offer you my compliments, by the way, as being a magnificent hypnotist, which I don't know that you think that you are, but I can see you have tremendous skill. You combine a tremendous intellect with coming from the heart, which I think is very rare. So thank you for being on the show. It's been an honor and a privilege and you definitely are an influencer who's on the edge the cutting edge so thank you for being on the show deeply appreciate it the influencer's edge is brought to you by the invisible influence series if you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion then make sure you text the word compel to 411321 that's compelled to 411321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPELLED to 1-909-741-1321.
Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Thank you for tuning in to the Influencer's Edge, where you get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques so you can leapfrog over the pack at sales, influence, and persuasion. Remember to visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com to enjoy even more great episodes like this one. We look forward to seeing you again on the Influencer's Edge Show.